Thank you for joining us for episode 13 of the Beer and Bible podcast. I'm Paul. I'm Dan. And we're going to be diving into part two of the Gospel According to Judas. This has been um, put off a couple times. We had stuff going on and we're finally able to sit down on Labor Day weekend uh-huh. and record this. So um, you want to give a synopsis of the last episode? Sure. So in the last episode, we went through all the passages about Judas Um, We also talked about some of the leading theories that um, there was these writings that surfaced called the Gospel of Judas, and they painted Judas as this insider who somehow knew that Jesus was supposed to die for our sins, and so he's doing his duty as Jesus' best friend to betray him and to help this all play out. And that's not a view that we endorse. Um, That view belonged to the Gnostic movement, which Gnostic means gnosis or power. Knowledge is power. And so they believed that through secret knowledge, you could make your way into the secret realm of Jesus or something. I don't think any of the uh, theories that we presented last time, we really held on to too tightly. No. No. But some of the more predominant views of today... Yeah, the evangelical view was pretty much like, yeah, he betrayed Jesus. Don't ask questions. Yeah, you kind of had to do it. God's yeah. like in charge of everything, so don't question it. There was also the zealot view, which I think today's episode is going to follow very closely to the zealot view. Yeah. With maybe a few, giving Judas maybe a little more credit. Um, putting some skin and bones back on him so that he's not... Just a devil. <laughs> He's not just the one who betrayed Jesus so we can have salvation. Right. Yeah. Um, and the whole thing about Judas that I wanted to highlight uh, both last week and this week is that I, f- I feel as if we've kind of done him a disservice as a character. Um, he's supposed to be a lot more relatable to yeah. us. That I think, and I mentioned this in the last episode, but a lot of churches will talk about how you know, have have you denied Jesus like Peter did? Yeah. But you don't have many pastors saying, have you betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss? Um, and there's a different level of gravity, but I think we more often find ourselves doing as Judas did than as Peter does. Yeah. But we find Peter a bit more palatable. Yeah. Nobody it's... wants to be a Judas. You know, <laughs> nobody goes out to be a Judas. That's a good point. Yeah. But, and, and I think maybe part of what we might dive into a little bit today is kind of how the Western thought process and the Western church has kind of led us to be Judas in some mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. So, so kicking it off, um, my main, my view really begins with the idea that Judas is an average, average Jewish male of his time. Um, growing up in Galilee, hearing about the Messiah, um, not particularly caring for the fact that Rome has soldiers patrolling his neighborhood, yeah, not particularly caring for the fact that they're taxed three times. So, like the predominant, like the male of this time, they're under the oppression of Rome, obviously, mm-hmm. but they're also always looking for this Messiah to come and liberate them from Rome. Their oppression in the current time. So for us to say that Judas was subscribing to this theory or this idea of the Messiah, a lot of them were. The majority Mm -hmm. of the rabbis at that time were preaching all this, which is why they had a garrison right by the temple. 
Yeah, actually, they built an addition onto the temple with a Roman garrison, garrison. in it. Yeah, so that they could squash anybody who got who mm-hmm. took this thought process too far. Yeah, it was Herod's garrison. I should say that it was a Jewish army, but it was loyalist to Rome. So, but its purpose was to squash rebellions yep. that were rising exactly. up against Rome. Yep, Get Jewish people fighting Jewish yep. people to support Rome. Yeah, and the Passover, which is when most of the Passion Week or the Holy Week, however, whatever you want to call it, the week of Jesus's trial and crucifixion, that period of time is happening during the Passover. Mm-hmm. And if you read the writings of Josephus, um, first century Jewish historian, he pretty much put lays it out there that every Passover, people started to get rowdy because... Yeah. It was like, it, it would be like if in America, because we're Americans, if every 4th of July um, we had um, Russians, let's just say the communists won yeah. the Cold War, and we Russia would send a bunch of soldiers to watch over us on the 4th of July, the date that represents our liberation. Um, do you think we'd maybe get a little rowdy and start some fights yeah. and try to throw off our... Um, foreign overlords. Yeah, because Passover for the Jewish yep. people is a remembrance of being exactly. let out of slavery in yep. Egypt. Yep. It was a celebration of God has brought us out of it. Yep. But they're currently, during Judas's time and Jesus' time, are under oppression again. Yep. So when the celebration of God leading them out of slavery comes up, there are people who are getting rowdy. There are people like, well, let's do this again. Yeah. Let's overthrow our, our oppressors again. So Judas isn't alone. No, about 50 years before Judas and Jesus... Um, met there was a revolution that resulted in about I think it was over 2,000 people being crucified along the roads of Galilee and uh, the Roman governor of that province at that time uh, had a feast at the foot of all those crosses and so they had wine, they had food and they watched people bleed out on crosses so very fresh in the memory of every Jewish male is these people are barbaric. They're just, they're insane. And there and there are scriptures are teaching that Messiah will come and liberate mm-hmm. them. So they're actively constantly seeking out that one who is going to bring them back, bring them out of yep. the oppression. So there are rabbis at the temple teaching all the time and there are different messiahs popping up. So it's not like Jesus was the only one. No. There are multiple messiahs during this time, or people claiming to be the messiah. Yeah. And so you got groups of people following each different teacher or messiah figure, hoping that they're going to overthrow Rome. Yeah. So we're trying to kind of add a human perspective to Judas that's quickly removed. Yeah. Because the Western evangelical thought process is just, well, Judas was a tool that was used by God so that we can mm-hmm. go to heaven. Where we're trying to say, um, actually, Judas was human, and he had these thoughts, and he went this direction for reasons for him that seemed true. And he wasn't betraying Jesus because he wanted Jesus to die. He was like, it, this isn't the Messiah we've been looking for, so let me profit off this and go and find the next one. Yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of where I end with it, yeah. Is that's kind of his line of thinking is he wanted it to be Jesus but it couldn't be in his mind. But he was drawn to Jesus for some reason. Yep. He definitely when he heard tales of 
a Jewish carpenter from the working class walking around speaking at um, synagogues that the day of the Lord was quickly approaching and that um, the kingdom of God was at hand. That would have been a trigger to anybody who was looking for the Messiah. They yeah. would have wanted to show up to the synagogue when he was teaching. They would have wanted to hear his words. There's the famous sermon uh, in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus stands up and he quotes from um, the scroll of Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, and it has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It goes on, and then it gets to this point in that prophecy where he says, uh, the day of the Lord's favor um, and the day of vengeance of our God yeah. is what the scroll of Isaiah says. But, but Jesus, Jesus stopped short. Yeah. And then they drag him out of the synagogue and try and throw him off a cliff because he wouldn't say those final words. The he vengeance would, part, he, the violence. Yeah. He didn't endorse the violent overthrow. Yeah. So there were constantly looking for that one and then he kind of all kind of pulled up short each time mm -hmm. of what exactly they they were looking for but he used language that incited them to have hope yeah. um that he was here to overthrow the roman government he used a phrase like son of man he mm -hmm. claims that title yeah and um the day of the lord he uses these these words that judas and any other male or female i mean anybody in the jewish culture it would trigger a oh it, God's this coming back. One. This yeah. could be the one. Yahweh is coming to bring us out of this what, this oppression that we're in. Yeah. And yeah. this is what we're, like we said, we're trying to add meat to Judas's bones. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he would have grown up playing Messiah. Like, <laughs> like, like people play Superman? Like superheroes. Yeah. But, um, this is somebody that he dreamed about his entire life. Yeah. Um, it is to the level of Christians wanting Christ to return. Kind of like the left behind kind of movement. <laughs> what no, are the left not behind? Not the left behind, just anybody that's looking forward to the return of Christ yeah. in our world. When we look around our world and we say, man, this is screwed up and we're hoping for his return. Well, what if he showed up in street clothes and was a son of a carpenter <laughs> with uh, Middle Eastern descent? You know, how would we handle that? How many of us would miss the Messiah? Yeah. Um, a lot. We're just all probably. hoping that he shows up in the clouds with trumpets, and we're like, "Oh, yep, that's, <laughs> that's definitely him." <laughs> with, with a big sign like, "I am the Messiah." Yeah, I am he. That's what we're hoping for. That's yeah. what they hoped for, so that they would recognize him as well. But he showed up, humble baby, born to impoverished parents. Um, there was rumors about Mary. Because not good rumors. No, we're talking like rumors. sleeping around rumors. Yep, there's rumors about his mother. Um, he grew up in Nazareth, which was a very small small village yep and we don't so, know exactly when Joseph died but we right. know that he grew up some of his life without a father yeah. as well Joseph isn't mentioned beyond the birth narrative so we have I mean he's not well, he's not mentioned beyond going to the temple, temple at 10 years old. old yeah yep. but we find that um, I mean he's not born into this idea of what they were expecting the Messiah to be when we find right. that with the magic with the wise men coming they go to Herod first Mm -hmm. To look for this child that is born. Yeah, if there's going to be a king born, he would be born at the palace, right? Yeah, he's not going to be born in the manger. So, I mean, the whole narrative of Jesus, it starts off turning the story on his head. Yet, somehow, he's able to still use the language, and and, and because he is Christ, he is the Messiah, to draw people in. Mm -hmm. And Judas is drawn uh -huh. into him, or drawn to him, because 
they're constantly looking for this Messiah. And Judas probably genuinely believed, I have found the one. This is the one. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's doing miracles. He's raising people from the dead. He's feeding 5,000 people. And the signs are there. Yeah. But something slightly off kilter with what I would say maybe a lot of them were looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was... So at that time, the four major sects were the Pharisees, sects with a T at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, keep our, the keep four our major sects of Judaism were Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, which lived like out in the wilderness. If you want like a good example of an Essene, read about John the Baptist. Or Jedis. Or Jedis. Yeah. <laughs> Obi-Wan. Um, Essenes were actually really interesting. But then you've got, um, in addition to those three that were kind of all above board, one... The two were kind of collaborators or worked within the system. Yeah. The Essenes uh, went out into the wilderness that had nothing to do with the system. And then the Zealots were trying to buck the system. Yeah. And the, the Zealots had an extreme division called the Sakari, which we talked about in the last episode. The Daggermen. The Daggermen. Yeah. And Josephus writes a fair amount about them, that they would hunt down and kill people that benefited or collaborated with the Roman occupation. Yeah. So you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are working inside of the Roman structure yeah. and are benefiting from the Roman mm-hmm. oppression at some point. Yeah. Essenes who are like, we're just separating ourselves. We have nothing to do with all that. And then you have the Zealots who are actively looking to overthrow Roman government through violence. Yep. And then you have the extreme form of that mm-hmm. with the Sakari. Yep. And we would discuss last time that we, we, lean, we were both kind of leaning towards the idea that Judas was a Zealot. But, yeah, to say he was a zealot is not necessarily to say he was violent. It just means he had messianic leanings. Yes. He was unhappy yeah. about... He wasn't his, going around carrying daggers, stabbing random people. Right. Yeah. He was just a person that wanted his freedom back. Yeah. And rightfully so. I mean, yeah. if you talk to anybody who's living under any form of oppression, they have this desire to be free. Mm-hmm. And the, the way that he was looking at it is freedom comes through violence. And we find over and over again, Jesus not succumbing to doing that, mm-hmm. even though this is the person that Judas was drawn to. Well, and he would have been because Jesus is kind of bucking the system. Yeah. They've shared enemies. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. friend. And so if if Judas was having a hard time with the Pharisees, which were clearly benefiting from the Roman occupation. Yeah. And actually, if you read, like, right before the trial of Jesus in the Gospel of John, um, I can't remember which chapter offhand, but it actually says if he continues on like this, the Romans will come and take away everything we have. Yeah. That's the, the Pharisees talking amongst each other. They were about losing their power. We can't let Jesus keep doing this or else there's going to be a problem. Yeah. So, so let's get rid of our problem. Yeah. Because we like the things that we get from Rome. Yeah. So the Pharisees were often targets of the Sicarii, actually. So Jesus shows up, and like you said, he's using titles like the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, and he's doing miracles, and he's really, Jesus is doing the messianic things, short of drawing a sword. Yeah. Like he's doing the things that he's supposed to do. And then there's this moment where it's the first time for Judas to really see King Jesus unveiled, in a sense, is... So he's been following Jesus for these three years at this point. And Jesus comes to um, Bethany, and he's anointed. But the anointing 
excuse me, doesn't happen the way that anybody wanted to see the Messiah get anointed. So he wasn't anointed by a high priest, or there was no pomp or circumstance. He was anointed by a woman um, of the night, possibly. But possibly. I mean, that's that's reading a bit into it. But even in their society, a woman anointing somebody, they had no mm-hmm. position of power. Yeah, seemingly and, unmarried woman. Yeah, um, anointing the next king would be very strange. Yeah. And then also, that's almost bucking the system too much for yeah. for a lot of people. At that and moment. it's taking place. We went over this last time, but where is it taking place? Isn't that Simon the, the leopard's yeah. house? So they're they're already <laughs> in a place where there shouldn't be. Yeah, the king shouldn't be there. The king shouldn't be ceremonially unclean yeah. going into a festival holiday <laughs> where he's supposed to go in and purify the temple. And then he gets anointed at the leper's house. Yeah. So the, I mean, Jesus is bucking the system almost too much. So it's kind of like I feel like sometimes we can take. People enjoy Christianity being counter-cultural to a point. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as we start messing with their, for lack of a better word, nationalism or even their theology, it's like, okay, you've bucked it a little bit too far. Let's let's swing it back. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is just going out in left field right now with them. Mm-hmm. A woman, a leper. Yeah, not going over well with everybody. around a coronation party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's Judas's moment to see, hey, look, he's being anointed as the next king of Israel. That's his moment. That's yeah. his opportunity, but he doesn't see it. And the other thing is this, this house. So the Mount of Olives is supposedly where this house was. Mm-hmm. And so they're on the mountain that is spoken of in the prophet Zechariah, where it talks about the king riding down on the colt of a donkey from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem to cast the Gentiles out of the city. So when when you're talking about Jesus fulfilling messianic things, Uh this is it. I mean, he's in the right place, the right time. This is moment, yeah. Yeah. He's at the right place, like you said, the right time. He's been anointed. anointed. Jumps on the donkey. (laughs) Yep, jumps on the donkey. Jesus is playing to all of our fancies. Yeah. Like all of our stories and imaginations not ours maybe but all of their stories stories. and imaginations and then he bucks a system when he says if only you knew what it was for peace yeah yep he's crying on his way (laughs) into town he's supposed to be killing everybody (laughs) clearing the temple of all the romans and instead he's crying on his way into town saying oh israel if only you knew what made for peace and that but even now it's hidden from your eyes yeah and that's really, that phrase can actually be applied to Judas at this moment. Yeah? In what way? Oh, Judas, if you only knew things that make for peace, but even now they're hidden from your eyes. Because he's looking for something else. Mm-hmm. Along with the rest of, unfortunately, a lot of people at this time. Yeah. So it's Passover week. We already mentioned in the last episode, but we'll rehash real quick why it's a big deal that he was at a leper's house. Because if you're ceremonially unclean, like having contact with a leper, then you can't be in the temple. You can't celebrate the festival. You're nope. excluding yourself. Yep. And there were ways around it. Like there was uh, there was little bathhouses. We went over this in our yeah. baptism podcast, which was like episode four or five. But there was a little bathhouses around Jerusalem, so if you happen to like 
have a wet dream the night before you were supposed to go. You could go and pay the fee and get cleansed. Here you traveled away from your family so you could go be a Jewish male at a festival (laughs) and you have a wet dream night. And it's like, oh crap, I can't go into the temple. So they had these pools, these cisterns around, but Jesus doesn't have time for that. He's riding in as king. Yeah. So they ride in ceremonially unclean and he cleanses the temple. All of this probably wouldn't have sat very well with anybody that is like a straight-laced messianic. Well, it probably didn't sit well with the Pharisees, the Sadducees. The Essenes are out in the desert anyway. They probably don't care. But the Zealots and the Sakari, they're all like, no, this is not what we need. This is not what we're looking for. This is not who the Mm -hmm. Messiah truly is. Because when he cleanses the temple, he he says that this is what? A house of prayer for? Mm Mm-hmm. All nations. All nations. Yeah. An inclusive statement all of a sudden. Yeah. It's not like, hey, we're taking it back. Yeah. I would say this. I think all of the zealots who were probably in the temple also practicing the holiday. Yeah. I would say everybody was cheering with Jesus as he's flipping the tables. Um, just excited that he's exposing the corruption of the system. Yeah. However, the moment he shouts those words, he becomes everybody's enemy. Yeah. (laughs) Because now he's saying, you've turned this into a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, including the Romans that are sitting there with shield and arm waiting for a rebellion to spring up. Yeah. And that wouldn't go over well because now he's all he's he's kind of not not that he's siding with Rome, but he's including Rome. Yeah. This, this, This temple is for all people. Even those oppressors out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few interesting takes on, like, the fact that he cleared where he was flipping tables was the court of the Gentiles. Yeah. So they were pretty much like, we don't want Gentiles in here, so let's fill it up with shopping space. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a few interesting side comments to that. But, but that could be another one. <laughs> yeah. Another podcast. Yeah. So... The irony of the situation is that Judas, like every good Jew, is looking for the Messiah, but he's blinded to the fact that he's just witnessed the coronation and the triumphal entry of his king. Yeah. Instead, he he doesn't he he just misses the fact that this is how it's happening, and he doesn't betray Jesus right away. He's still wrestling with it, and you can tell that there's something going on in Judas shortly after this. Mm -hmm. Um, The Gospel of John, as we read last week, calls him out as being the one that objects to the anointing. Um, So he's definitely, he's wrestling with what's going on. And and his objection seems ultra, um, it seems like he's caring about other people first. He's like, well, that could have fed how many people? Yeah, we said it was like $33,000 worth of perfume. That's like... Yeah, I will never buy my wife that amount of perfume. (laughs) So the first um, real point where I feel like we could draw comparison to our lives is how often do we argue that things have to go according to to tradition or the way that we learned it that we were growing up is the way the Bible is supposed to be? Because that's the thing is Judas learned all this growing up, you know, He's yeah, he supposed was, to get to the Mount of Olives. He's supposed to be crowned king by a real coronation party. Yeah. And then he's supposed to go in and kick butt. So Because Judas isn't on the French. He's on the no. mainstream. Yep. This is mainstream thought for Jewish men and women, the, the Jewish nation at this time. Yeah. 
And we're not even saying he's a radical, really. No. He's just he's just the general Jewish male yeah. of his time. Because the, the, when we talk about the zealots, we're not saying that they were actively always trying to kill Romans or overthrow them. Their view was the Messiah was going to come in and violently overthrow the Roman mm-hmm. government. And that the Messiah would lead them in that battle. Yeah. And so that wasn't it wasn't a a radical view. They backed it up scripturally. Mm-hmm. They, they they had their Torah and their and their and their scriptures that they used to back it up. And Judas is kind of do you feel like he's disappointed or kind of like confused? I'd say sometimes with confusion comes anger. Yeah. I think he's getting angry at the things he's seeing Jesus do. Yeah. But he's really confused because he knows that Jesus is fulfilling certain things. Mm-hmm. But deep down, he just can't let go of that national promise that one day his people would be the supreme people on the face of the earth. Because, I mean, Judas has witnessed people being raised from the dead, mm-hmm. feeding of over 5,000 people. He's witnessed Which all these he miracles. He probably liked the feeding of the 5,000, but there was another group of Gentiles that Jesus fed, and he probably wasn't, wasn't too keen on that. Because <laughs> he's, he's feeding the enemy now. Yeah. yeah. But he's seen all these things, and then all of a sudden there's that, that like, friction. I feel like we're, we're taking, if we're looking at this at, like, a personal level, sometimes taking an application away from that, that we do we sometimes try and get rid of the friction of Jesus that Jesus brings into our, mm-hmm. not, I don't know, our personal lives, but into our communities, that friction of, well, we can't feed everybody. You got to teach them how to fish and then they can feed themselves forever. And mm-hmm. you always have the poor and all these things. And, and that friction that is caused. I think a lot of people would side with Judas on the matter of the perfume. I would find myself, I mean, if we're being honest, I'm thinking $30,000. I'm like, how many food pantries can that fill? Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm saying, I think Judas is one of the most relatable disciples to us. Yeah. Which is part of why he's highlighted as a character, why he shared, why they explain so much of his story. But also kind of, do you think it kind of shows the counter, the sub- subversiveness of Jesus as well mm-hmm. in their culture and how he should be subversive in our culture as well? Yeah, and how we we get comfortable in our Western culture, and when Jesus becomes that subversive voice, we're like, eh, well, uh, no, yeah. Well, I like how you said that. Sometimes we argue that things that must be done according to tradition and allowed, and, and kind of allow ourselves to be distracted by that frustration. It's like we kind of miss the point. We're arguing over the way things are done instead of looking at the wider kingdom. And we're looking at our little kingdoms, little churches, denominations, and pilgrims. Yeah. So looking at the wider scope of of what's going on in the world. I mean, we asked the question a couple weeks ago, or I, I posed it to you, if you think the church is kind of doing the right thing. And my view was so narrow looking at the Western church. And when we look at the church globally and we see what the church is doing, it's, it's thriving in some places. Yeah. And they're sending missionaries back to us. Yeah, yeah. Was it South Korea sent how many missionaries to the United States? It's their biggest mission field. Yeah. We're too screwed up. I don't blame them. Uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting in all of this is we want so badly, and I know this has been mentioned a couple of times, but we want so badly to think that Judas is not a relatable character. Yeah. But I believe... That not only is he a relatable character, I think that he is the ultimate story for us to wrestle with in order to believe the gospel. Because 
really the gospel according to Judas is the gospel that is the alternative to the gospel of Christ. Yeah. So at the end of the day, Judas believed something that led him to betray Jesus. And that truth, his truth, is something that I think people followed then and still follow now. And on the other hand, there's the way of Jesus, which sometimes doesn't make sense. Sometimes it doesn't follow the Bible literally. Yeah. And we pick at it and we say, well, no, he's not doing this. He was supposed to breathe fire while coming down <laughs> the mountain sort of thing. He has a dragon behind yeah, him. And yeah. And so we wrestle with that. And Jesus just continually shocks us. Kind of like how sometimes in the Western church we explain away the teachings of Jesus. Mm-hmm. We kind of like, well, he said this, but now let me dissect this and explain it, how it fits into our cultural context and how we can stay comfortable and safe and still kind of follow the ways of Jesus. Yeah. I haven't read it, so I can't really dog it, but Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard yeah. is kind of an approach on that. Like, let's make this palatable for you. Yeah. Like because you can it's be too extreme if you just take it at face value. You can be subversive to a point. Yeah. But if you if you break through the nationalism or the tradition or the the way we've always done things, and you're go, you're taking it too far, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what Jesus was doing to Judas and probably the rest of them. I don't think Judas was alone in the wrestling. There was uh, most people believe there is at least two actual zealots following Jesus out of, the, out of the twelve. Yeah. Okay. Plus. Jesus. So there was Simon the Zealot, which is actually called out. Yeah. Um, he's like called out as a Zealot. zealot. Uh, Judas is generally understood to be at least somewhat a Zealot, have Zealot leanings. Yeah. Um, I think I would argue that Peter and Andrew, um, being fishermen in Galilee, that they Maybe their hearts were softer, but they definitely had the same expectation for the Messiah. The sons of thunder. Yeah. Well, and it comes up at some point. Um, well, that was James and John, James and John. Son, son of Zebedee, uh, which they could have been also. Yeah. But it's, the unique thing is that Jesus brings these diverse uh-huh. viewpoints together. Like they all yeah. see something in Jesus yeah. that like this is relatable to the Messiah that we have been looking for. Mm-hmm. But he just doesn't fully fulfill their idea of what the Messiah needs to be. Well, if we want to be fair, anybody that's willing to like up and leave their business to go follow somebody who says they're the Messiah is generally going to be somebody with somewhat zealot tendencies. Someone that's hoping for the Messiah to come to overthrow Rome. They're they're leaving everything behind. They believe the time is happening so they they can afford to leave because things are going to be so much better when the Messiah does his thing and we're going to reign with him so who's yeah. number one <laughs> right exactly yeah who's going to reign with you when the new king shows up and says hey this is happening like jesus constantly saying jesus almost led them on at some points <laughs> like the kingdom is close at hand and, yeah um yeah it's it's fair to say that most of the apostles believed jesus was the messiah that would one day raise a sword against rome yeah and we can't fault them in that. No. Because that is that is what they were taught to believe. That's mainline belief. Yeah. Yeah. Where we would think that's more of a radical idea now, but in their time frame and their culture, that was the main. Specifically in Galilee, yeah. too. Um, it would be different if we were talking about Jews in Rome, mm-hmm. who are clearly 
neighbor to and <laughs> benefiting from Roman occupation. Yeah. But Galilee was different. Galilee had the most recent uprising and slaughter. Mm -hmm. um, Galilee was the hotbed for all of the mess that was the Jewish revolt. Like they hid in the rocks and the um, caves outside of like the hill country outside of the valley there. Um, Galilee was really synonymous with terrorism. Kind of like today we talk about like different regions of the Middle East and say most people hearing that would just say, oh yeah, that's where the terrorists are. Yeah. Well, that, it was the same way. With if Galilee, you were in yeah. Rome and you said, hey, those hotheads in Galilee. You're like, oh, was, those people yeah. are constantly trying to overthrow yeah, our government terrorists. and terrorists that are attacking us, yep. coming through. And, yeah. Yep. And their tactics were to like, um, if a royal family was traveling through, because there was actually a nice town um, not far from Nazareth where Romans would go vacation um, on a lake, mm -hmm. and or actually beside the sea. And it was a beautiful city. It was made in Greek culture, Greek fashion. So all these prominent Romans would travel to the Middle East for vacation. <laughs> And the Jews that were the zealots would hide in the hills and they would ambush these caravans yeah. of just innocent, well, innocent as much as you can be as a As you're profiting wealthy, off oppression. Yeah, as yeah. you're a wealthy American slash Roman of the time. <laughs> Slight dig there. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what was going on. They were terrorists. Yeah. They were viewed as terrorists. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was... And some were violent and some were just sympathetic. Yeah. And... And you, yeah. I think we would see Judas in more sympathetic mm -hmm. in this in this yep. in this story. That's what he's looking for. He hasn't taken up the sword, but if, he's looking for that. Yeah, if he wanted to go kill people, he would have had plenty of opportunities to do that. Instead, yeah. he is trying to take this Jesus way. Yeah, he's trying to feel it out. So I think there's a few things that really lead up to Judas being willing to betray Jesus. And I think the evidence is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, 19 through 26. Uh, Jesus is asked, do we pay taxes to Caesar? This is a huge hot topic among zealots. Kind of sounds like today. <laughs> yeah. And um, the Pharisees are doing this to try and trap Jesus because yeah. Jesus has gained popularity among the zealots. And the Pharisees are like, well, if we can get the zealots to not like him, or if we can get him to outright say, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then we're done with this whole Jesus problem. Because they'll take care of him. Yeah. Yeah. So they're trying to nail Jesus down, and Jesus says, well... <laughs> nail yeah. Jesus, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no pun intended. But Jesus says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar. Yep. And then finishes it off with, give to, render to God what is God's. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of causing that division again. Yep. So he doesn't give them the answer they want. There's nothing that they can chase him after because he tells them to give, pay your taxes to Caesar. Yeah. And he actually takes the coin and he says, well, whose face is on this coin? Whose image and whose likeness? And this is where, like, the the real radical part comes in because he says, whose image and likeness is on this coin? And they say, well, Caesar's. He says, well, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's and what belongs to God. Who is made in God's image and likeness? It's humanity. Give the humans back to God. Yeah, and we will. Oh, that's yeah. <laughs> we might get to there. Might get there at the end. That part. That's a good. 
I mean, there's a good time to what we're hoping to wrap everything up with, but give to God what is God humanity. Yeah. Give them back. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus is specifically saying the money that belongs to Caesar. That's his kingdom stuff. Yeah. The people is my kingdom stuff. And that and that would go counter. It was counterintuitive to what they've been doing because yeah. they're probably saving up money to fight Rome. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's the Caesar stuff. Give it back to him. Yeah. Well, so he ticked off the zealots there. He disarmed the Pharisees there. Yeah. And the only people that might have had an inkling of what truth he was speaking were people that um, were actually humble enough to say, holy cow, he wants us to return to God. Maybe almost like the Essenes saying, yeah. hey, we're not partaking in any of that. Right. Give to Rome whatever's Rome. We're, we're separated from God over here. Yeah, except for they're out digging holes for their poop. Yeah. In the <laughs> desert. Not impacting the world in any way, shape, or form. Josephus' description of them is funny because Josephus mm-hmm. traveled with them for a while. So that's where the digging holes for poop <laughs> reference comes from. If you wanted to join them, you had to live on your own for um, a significant amount of time. And you were just given a small spade to bury your own feces. Uh, they remind us of monks. <laughs> they are, yeah. They are kind of the earliest form of monks. And then on Luke chapter 21, we have the Olivet Discourse. Yep. Which is? Which is where he's talking about Jerusalem being destroyed. It's kind of like this prophetic, hey, you're looking for me to wipe out Rome, but you know what? Jerusalem's going to be leveled. Mm-hmm. That violence begets more violence. I mean, in essence, he's saying. Well, yeah. And it starts off with the disciples are walking through Jerusalem. Some of them, if they were poor enough, probably never saw it until going there with Jesus. Yeah. And so they're walking through. They're like, look at the buildings, Jesus. Look at this architecture. This is amazing. And Jesus, being the party pooper that he is, says, I tell you the truth, not one of these stones will be left on top of another. And they would have just been shocked. It would have been a moment where people would have just turned around and said, "Okay, this guy's—he's nuts." Yeah, Yeah. because this is not. This is a huge city. This is a huge like. This is big. Yeah, and there, and he's saying, in the end, nothing's going to be. Not only is it big, but he's the Messiah. He's supposed to be the one guaranteeing that it stays forever. (laughs) (laughs) True. I didn't. Yeah, that's that's the whole thing. Like they're expecting him to kind of defend Jerusalem. Yeah. And he's saying, yeah, not going to happen. It's going to be destroyed. Yeah, every stone within this city will be leveled. Yeah, it's so countercultural that this is one of those moments. I think if we were to add up like three building blocks to Judas, realizing that he couldn't follow Jesus anymore, the first one would be the anointing. Yeah. The second one would be this moment of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus tells them, look, Jerusalem's going to get destroyed. And we're going to go into this more in a minute, so I won't go much further with that. <laughs> but then the and the third one is yet to come as well. But there's like three pinnacle moments where Judas really is given a choice and he heads one way with it, and that way is opposing Jesus. And you think this is kind of like the moment where Jesus is revealing the fact that the kingdom of God is not based in Jerusalem. It is not... Because he's already said that... The, that the house is a, is a house of prayer for all nations. So he's in, being inclusive here. Mm-hmm. And then their central location of this is where we worship, this is where everything happens. He's saying, yeah, no, this will be leveled. Yeah. And the kingdom will still exist. 
in essence. Jesus is in a way a doomsday prophet. Standing on the street corner with <laughs> Right. Well, he brings a judgment against Jerusalem. Yeah. And he says, it's going to be leveled. It's going to be destroyed. Because in chapter, in those next chapters when Judas betrays him. Yeah. Like Judas has had it. But, but what we're trying to kind of do in this podcast is not to give excuses to Judas, but for us to understand Judas's reasonings for doing this are rooted in his tradition. They're rooted in who he is. They're rooted in the time. Because we so quickly say, well, you know, Judas just betrayed Jesus, blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh. There were real reasons why Judas bucked the system or bucked what Jesus was teaching. Yeah. So within the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them share Jesus' prophecy that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It's not a high point in Jesus' teachings. He's yeah. supposed to be the Messiah, like I said. He's supposed to defend it. Yeah. And not only is he saying he's not going to defend it, but his actual placement. So he goes into like apocalyptic. So Jesus kind of like freestyles here because Jesus doesn't normally talk from a apocalyptic literature yeah. standpoint. Apocalyptic being um, revealing literature that talks with like fantasy type you're not talking about like end time prophecy you're talking about the way that he's wording this the way he's wording it but yes what you're saying is what we've read before so most people read matthew 24 and they hear about the stars falling and the um sun dying and the moon like all all the language about the cosmos and they're like well clearly that hasn't happened yet (laughs) and so they disregard it as something that will happen later yeah but the reality is that kind of language was really typical when a kingdom fell. Um, it's not the first time it's been used. It was used in Daniel. It was used in Zechariah. Where they're, where they're saying like everything around us is coming to an end. Yeah. Like every, yeah. all of our reality as we know it mm-hmm. is ending. Their world was smaller than our world. We didn't, so didn't their, have Wikipedia. Their world was collapsing. Yeah. Um, so they throw out there, um, Jesus throws out there that their world is coming to an end, essentially. And people aren't happy about it, um, clearly, because he's the Messiah. He's supposed to be protecting and defending Jerusalem. And then this is a excerpt from Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. And traditionally in the Western Church, that has been tied in with like revelation and the end times Mm -hmm. and all this and are you kind of arguing the fact that for the jewish people of this time when jerusalem is destroyed is the end of their world that's one more so i would say he's creating a hyperlink yeah so the language that he takes there and he he cues it all in with son of man reference yeah so the son of man reference is rooted in daniel so in the book of Daniel, there's this moment where 
um, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, there is um, one who appears in the clouds, a son of man, and he goes to the Ancient of Days, uh, presumably God, and he is given all the kingdoms of the world, the dominion, the power of the world. Now, people began believing that that son of man was synonymous with the Messiah. Yeah. And so if Jesus went around in his ministry, and you can read it a hundred times where he refers to himself as the son of man. Mm -hmm. So Jesus has done this buildup. He said, you're going to see the son of man, or the son of man does this, the son of man does that. It's synonymous with, well, that's not, that's either how the Messiah behaves or that's not how the Messiah behaves. Yeah. Um, and so then when we come to this and he says, you're going to see the Son of Man in the clouds, well, in Matthew chapter 24, he does all of his destruction talk first. So Jerusalem is destroyed and he does all of his talk like it's going to be terrible for pregnant women in those days and one will be taken, the other one will be left. Um, he does all of his destruction talk. He carries out his, the destruction of Jerusalem. He explains it all, says it's all going to happen. And then you will see the Son of Man appear. Yeah. So the Messiah is almost going to let all this destruction take place, and then he's going to appear in the clouds. And that's not the way Daniel goes. Because Daniel goes that he comes to deliver them, doesn't he? In Daniel, he comes after a major victory against the nations of the world. Yeah. So the Son of Man kills the beast and those that follow the beast and then awards the Son of Man the nations of the world. Which kind of leads into a small plug of join us on Wednesday nights as we look at the book of Revelation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're in the Belding area, we're doing Revelation through September for the foreseeable future. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a while. For the end of time. <laughs> so in Daniel, it's kind of portrayed as a message of deliverance, mm -hmm. but in Matthew chapter 24, it's a prophecy or declaration of destruction. destruction. Yeah. And Which again, is he, have sat well. and again, he's playing to what they already know. Yep. He's playing, he's not giving them any new information. He's reinterpreting stuff that they already know. And they've interpreted one way and he's saying, mm -hmm. well, look at it this way. Yep. And that would probably get on a lot of people's nerves. I think a lot of people still had hope in Jesus up until this point. But then all of a sudden when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, they're like, uh, you've taken it that one step too far. Destruction of the temple, too. Yeah. I mean, the temple was God's house. Yeah. You don't mess with God's house. So first of all, he tells them that it's going to be a house of, of prayer for all nations. And then he says, mm -hmm. well, it's also going to be destroyed. Yeah. So he's kind of desecrating their temple. Yeah. Or what their idea of the temple should be. Well, and he throws in there... Uh, in Matthew 24, he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation. So something he's saying something is going to happen in the temple that will cause God to leave his people. Yeah. And when you see that happen, head for the hills. <laughs> and what he says. And the irony of that is the fact that when the curtain is split at the crucifixion, God is not there. Right. He is not with the people. Right. He is not in the temple. The curtain to the Holy of Holies. Holies yeah. He is not present. Also, coincidentally, and part of the reason why all this language is used about the universe and stars falling and everything, the temple veil was decorated in order to represent the universe. Mm -hmm. It was almost as if the universe itself shrouded God from humanity. Yeah. 
and it had stars, it had all the symbolism that was supposed to represent the planets and the constellations and everything. And when that is torn in two, it's almost as if the universe itself has been split asunder and we're able to look through the universe and see God is not in this place that we built. But almost like the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from heaven. Right. Yeah, I mean, the same I mean, language, the same is, language used. is used, yeah. Mm-hmm. And God is not present. Right. So, the second point where I think that we get hung up on is how many of us, if Jesus showed up and told us not to be quite as pro-American exceptionalism, <laughs> I like the way you worded that would kind fall, of would fall away. Yeah, if I mean, we, if we were told to hang our flag a little lower than our Jesus flag. Well, I mean, people have always said if Jesus shows up again, the church would miss him because he would be in the bars and he would be with the prostitutes and all this. And he's taking it a step further. Yeah. I don't know if that really does Jesus justice. I don't think it does because I think it's still working inside of our frame of mind. Like we can go there. We can go to those bars and we can go to those prostitutes. Not saying don't visit prostitutes, but but we can go and witness to those people on the on the margins. But when we start saying things that get you in trouble politically in these days, where we start making statements of, okay, which kingdom do we follow first? Do we follow the way of Jesus? Or do we follow the way of any other nation. I mean, we we live in the, in in America, so that's what we relate to the first. Yeah. But people in Europe and England can say, well, what do we hold to first? The parliamentary system and the way that we rule our government in England, or the way of Christ? And when there's conflict between the two, who do we in, who do we support? Who do we endorse? Yeah. And I think the more I've studied Christ, the more I said the idea of what this kingdom of God is, the more friction that is found between any trying to tie any kingdom, any other kingdom into the way of the kingdom of God. And that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. They were working inside of the framework, inside of the structure that was there. And the kingdom of God is more working, not even dealing with that structure and stepping out of it. Yeah. Spoiler alert, when Jesus is saying to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. I mean, that's exactly what you just said. Like, it doesn't fit in within their framework. Yeah. Um, because he says, because if it was, I would call down a legion of angels and wipe everything out. He's saying, yeah. if my kingdom worked like you guys, I would use violence. But it's not. Right. And that's where I think any nationalism, no matter what, what nationalism you subscribe to, that's where the conflict happens. Because Jesus never takes that step into violence. Right. Where nationalism tends to constantly take that step towards violence to sustain itself. Jesus goes as far as saying, the way of the kingdom of God, you know what? Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed, but the kingdom of God will still prevail past that. Where we're very fixated on structures. Yeah, we don't require borders in the kingdom of God. And that can get, not only because of our political climate, but any (laughs) political climate. I mean, it, it, it makes it rough. Yeah. Because we like to categorize, you're in, you're out, you're one of us, you're not one of us. Where, again, when Jesus is in the temple and he says, my, my, this is a house of prayer for all nations. 
that's breaking down the borders saying everybody is welcome and included yeah. and that doesn't go that doesn't preach well no it didn't then and it doesn't now I will try it one Sunday see how it goes <laughs> I got that resignation letter no I'm joking it's it's in Google Drive somewhere <laughs> well hopefully we're throwing enough beer and Bible podcasts in it where it'll take you while I signed it yeah <laughs> um so I think I think it is reasonable to say that that could be Judas's motive. Yeah. That he's beginning to realize that this movement that Jesus is leading is not getting to the ends that he was hoping for. So with that motive, let's go to the upper room scene. Mark tells us that Jesus warns of a betrayal and states that the betrayer is one of the disciples dipping bread into the same bowl as him. Luke, in a similar warning, says that the hand of the betrayer is at the table with them. Matthew, however, spices things up a bit, and he says that Jesus says the same thing as in Mark and Luke. It is someone at the table with us. Um, but then Judas jumps in and says, teacher, is it me? Like he doesn't know. Right. So the first two Gospels um, throw out there, hey, it's somebody here. Where Matthew almost is like Jesus is giving Matthew per, uh, Judas permission in Matthew. It creates tension. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then... Think, yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, we're I good. was going to say, in the first episode, I mentioned that Matthew is probably my favorite when it comes to the Ju- Judas narrative because mm-hmm. it's the most nuanced. Yeah. So, like, we, we have him using the sign of respect, teacher. Yeah. Or rabbi. Does it rabbi, mean? is it me? Almost like he's he he can sense that maybe Jesus doubt Jesus understands his doubt, kind of like, hey, hey, I know I'm having this doubt. Are you talking about me? Do you know what's going on? I mean, you've done all these miracles over here. Do you also read my mind? And Jesus uh, responds, "You have said so." The final vocal. He's finally vocalizing what he's been internally keeping it. Mm-hmm. And then Just, John. Yeah. Well, there's, then there's John. So, John thirteen twenty one through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. We'll pause right there real quick. We mentioned this in the first episode, but they're laying around the table. Yeah. And their their torso, like their head and shoulders are towards the table. Their feet are away from the table. They're back to back probably. So Jesus probably can't see Luke or Peter. Or, Peter. Yeah. And Peter's motioning to the disciple at Jesus' back, saying, I know who it is. Who is this? Who's going to betray him? So then the disciple that is back-to-back with Jesus, because you would lay in such a way that one arm would be kind of, you'd be leaning on a shoulder and you'd be eating with the other hand. So the one that's back-to-back with Jesus just kind of leans over. Who Who is is it, Lord? (laughs) Tell me who it is. Come on. So then it ramps up here and says, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Um, So remember, he had just said, it is he 
whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So the other Gospels leave it very open-ended, but John is like, he's cueing one of the disciples in. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, that verse that you dislike. (laughs) (laughs) He took communion and he got possessed by Satan. (laughs) Yep. Jesus said to him, what are you, whatever you're going to do, go do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Do you see what the inconsistency there? He just told an apostle, it's whoever I give this morsel of bread to. But nobody believed that. Nobody understands. Yeah. Yeah. Because he gives a morsel to Judas, and then they're like, oh, he's probably going to feed the poor, or he's buying stuff for the feast. Yep. Judas is off being Judas. (laughs) But they don't fathom that he has it in him to betray. So it's really interesting. And all of the Gospels leave us room to determine if we think any of the other apostles other than Judas knew what was going on. Yeah. Because, I mean... They've been together together for, what, three years at this mm-hmm. point? Yeah. So Judas had disappeared probably multiple times to go and buy things because he had the purse, give to yep. the poor. So do you think that in that upper room that they just didn't fully understand when Jesus said, whoever I give this to, yep, they're the one who's going to betray me. And then they don't realize it's Judas? Well, and even if they did realize it, there are a bunch of teenager young adults drinking (laughs) exactly (laughs) they've had a bit of wine yeah um what baffles me is if they knew if they believed it was judas why would they let him leave the room yeah you know if if jesus had stood up and made it very clear to everybody that it was judas don't you think they would have been like hey that guy's not going anywhere (laughs) keep him here or do you think they wrestled with jesus's validity as well i mean there's two two perspectives i would probably lean to more of the fact that they didn't understand what was going on well in one of the gospels they break into arguing about who's the best who's the best yeah. it's like this one's gonna betray us yeah. but who's better than everybody else yeah. like we do in bible studies yeah we'd who? rather talk about who's the best rather than who's betrayed jesus yeah <laughs> So now we come to probably one of the most interesting parts, the part that you love, the Uh, Satan part. The Satan part. And I like the way we discussed this before the podcast because I guess in the Western mindset, we have this idea of Satan and then we take it back to the dark ages where we have the jester, the court jester, the devil horns and all this. And we have this perception of who Satan is or what Satan is. And then you were talking, we were talking about the beginning or before we started recording this idea of the character of Satan throughout the Gospels, of how he tempts Jesus, and as he comes to this point of entering Judas, it says he enters Judas, you made the argument that it's not this physical possession of Jesus of Judas, but it's this kind of idea that Judas has turned away. He has decided that he is going to endorse something other than the kingdom of God. Yeah. And I would take it to maybe a half step above that, like a half step into the next dimension. (laughs) Um, I'm not saying that it wasn't a mix of physical and spiritual interaction. Okay. I think there could have been 
something beyond what we understand involved. And I say that because I think evil needs to be given its due credit. Evil, evil, and if we're going to name Satan as kind of the archduke of all (laughs) things evil, then I think we need to paint it in a picture that it does operate in in a dimension that we don't always see or understand. So you, because you're, so you would argue that every this idea of that every interaction is spiritual. Yeah. So that this interaction, this this movement by Judas, goes to the quote unquote dark side. He has sided with evil. Has mm-hmm. he's been possessed by the sat by the Satan or by Satan? Yeah. And that he is giving over him, he giving himself over to the way that is other than the divine way of God. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, let's go into how it plays out. So um, we need to remember the Gospels, they're building on the earlier scriptures, but Satan is not mentioned more than a, two or three times in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, he really comes to prominence in the Gospels. In the Gospels, he becomes a main character. He becomes the adversary of Jesus. Yeah, the accuser. Yeah. yeah. Before that, though, he shows up once in the book of Zechariah in a really cryptic passage. Mm -hmm. He shows up uh, in the book of Job as a guy that's invited to Jesus' heavenly boardroom. Yeah. (laughs) And he shows up one other time, I believe, in Chronicles in an equally cryptic message. And we have painted a whole theology on the devil. Right. But we base that mostly on the New Testament passages. Yes. But what framework are they working from? Mm -hmm. So they're working from that old framework. Yeah. So Jude... Uh, Satan was the accuser. It was the one saying humanity can't do this. Humanity deserves to be punished. Humanity will always just be dirt. They are not your prized possessions, God. Which is um, why you have this the picture of Jesus being the advocate and Satan, the, Satan being mm-hmm. the accuser. Satan's essentially a lawyer. Yeah. He's built a case against humans that he likes to bring before God, stand in the courts and say, why don't you just do something with them. Look how screwed up they are. And when we get to the Gospels, for Satan to show up and be tempting Jesus in the wilderness with all the same things that he's tempted other people with. Food, power, immortality. Yep. Survival or sustenance, power and immortality. And Jesus doesn't succumb to any of them. Nope. But those are all things, specifically the last one, where he could have accomplished what everybody thought the Messiah needed to accomplish, taking over the world. That's kind of what kings generally give into. Power? Yeah, yeah. power or immor- the desire for immortality. Yeah. So Satan takes like his same old bag of tricks out. And I say Satan as like this, he's a personified character, but it's really just evil in our world always goes this way. Yeah. Um, We can call it Satan. We can call it evil with a capital E. Yeah. But evil tends to go to those who are in power or rising to power and offer them XYZ. And XYZ happen to be survival or sustenance, power, and immortality. And that's where what Jesus tells them to get behind me, Satan... Is not is he is he talking about somebody being possessed by Satan or is it kind of this idea of you're going down the wrong road so, yeah. so yeah, yeah we're not doing that Peter passage Peter. Yeah. where 
Jesus had just finished telling Peter that the Messiah had to die. Die. (laughs) Which is, again, counterintuitive (laughs) to everything that they've been taught. Yeah. So he had just said, hey, um, as it turns out, Peter, I'm going to have to die. The Messiah is going to have to die. Yeah. And Peter says, surely that cannot be. I will not allow it to happen. And Jesus says to him quite harshly, get behind me, Satan. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, do we actually believe Peter was possessed by Satan, or do we believe that this is once again hearkening to Satan's first appearance in the gospel, which is the temptation that you don't have to do it this way, Jesus? Yeah. Like, and if you think about the things that Jesus was offered, the food, I mean, Jesus fed 5,000, and then he fed another 5,000. Like, the food thing, Jesus has that taken care (laughs) of, but it was on Jesus' terms and in his time. Mm Mm-hmm. The kingdoms of this world were, Jesus has that taken care of, but it's in his time and in his way. The immortality, that's taken care of. But the thing is, Satan is trying to get him to claim it on earth under under the rules of engagement that belong to the earth. Under the Roman idea of oppression or any, any form of violence. Yep. He's saying, take it violently. Yep. And... Because if for for Jesus not to be killed, he would have would have had to have rebelled violently. Yep. And it he's telling Peter, to that point, and yeah. he's telling Peter, yeah, get behind me. We, we, I mean, he, he Jesus himself says, if there's any other way, let it be. But we will go this route. Mm-hmm. So there's that. We can talk about the friction that Jesus has about the cross another time. But this idea that we have kind of, I almost feel like we have humanized Satan more than we've humanized Judas. <laughs> I mean, we put more skin and bones on him as yeah, a character. As a character, yeah, we we have we've put it so much, and then when it comes to this idea of Satan entering Judas, we're kind of arguing that it's not this manifestation of a demon possession; it's Judas turning himself over to a way other than the kingdom of God, because that is actually what he had been taught to embrace almost, and. That's the way that Luke and John kind of lay it out. In uh, C.S. Lewis' book, which, by the way, months ago when we went to uh, Missouri and I downloaded those two books by C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. um, we listened to one, but the second one was Perlandra by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. We didn't listen to that one. We did not, um, but I recently listened to it. And the character that represents... Uh, we can't get into what he really represents, but what he ends up doing at one point, this is the villain of the story. He ends up saying at one point that um, he recognizes that there is a spiritual world, that there is um, a power out there. However, he identifies that power as something that will give him power over his fellow man, that will give humans a chance to advance Mm -hmm. as people. Um, to give humans the power and not a god somewhere the power. Yeah. And so he ends up getting into this fit where he's gone on this lecture and he gets to the point where he says, I I draw on that eternal power. That eternal power, if I could, I would let it completely control me. And then all of a sudden he's possessed. And in that moment when I was listening to that, I was like, well, that's kind of like what happens to Judas. Yeah. It's almost like Judas says this has to happen this way and if i could if i could have the power then i would i would take it yeah 
if if I could overthrow Rome, I would take it. And that's what he's doing. Yeah. Because he understands that Jesus isn't here to overthrow Rome. Yep. He has had that realization. Mm-hmm. So now he's kind of, I'm moving on to the next one, but I have to get rid of, kind of get rid of the one that I'm following right now because he's going to do more damage. Yeah. Because like the Pharisees and the Sadducees had said that if he continues on this way, we got to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. And Judas is kind of embracing that idea. Yeah. And I think C.S. Lewis kind of models that character after Judas in mm-hmm. a way. Like he really plays it up. And I think C.S. Lewis was digging into this, like saying, well, this is when Satan possesses humans, is when they become an advocate against humanity. And yeah. I don't want to give the book away because it's one of my favorite books. But, <laughs> but download it, read it, buy yeah, it. Perlandra, C.S. Lewis. It's amazing. So I guess what I was going to throw out there um, concerning Satan was his character narrative throughout the book is um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Then in Matthew and Mark, Jesus shouts at Peter, get behind me, Satan, after Peter rebukes Jesus for saying he would be killed. And then in Luke, when the apostles return from their mission to spread the good news, Jesus tells them he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then also in Luke, when Jesus is warning Peter um, that he would deny him, he tells him Satan has asked to have him, that he might be sifted like wheat. So throughout all that context, Satan is this character that is kind of opposed to the gospel. Yeah. It's opposed to the mission that Jesus is on. Mm-hmm. And so it's not absurd to say that Judas was taken over by Satan. Yeah. Because Take- now the opposition has embodied itself in one person. Yeah. So the, co- the whole cohesive thought through the Gospels when it comes to Satan is that he is putting different people to the test to see if they will remain faithful to the mission Satan puts Jesus under trial and he passes, but he doesn't but that doesn't stop Jesus from shouting at Peter, "Get behind me, Satan," when Jesus was tempted again to preserve rather than to lay down his life. And so that's I guess where I see the Satan narrative coming in is we'd be too hasty to jump to a full literal interpretation of Satan indwelling Judas, and yeah. yet there is this ancient power that has accused humans of being dirtbags for thousands of years. And he's kind of like succumbing to that. Yeah, exactly. So in the garden, all the gospel writers describe the garden events in a similar fashion. Judas Judas shows up with the army and they take Jesus away. And then the death of Judas, we talked about this in the last episode, it's different between Matthew and Luke. And yeah. Mark, he just goes missing. <laughs> like, And he's not there anymore. Yeah. Uh, Matthew is the only gospel that tells a short side story of Judas storming back into the council of the Sanhedrin, returning the money and declaring, I have betrayed an innocent blood. Then the priests refuse the money and he throws it on the floor and goes out in great distress to hang himself. The priests then buy a field with the money. Uh, Luke, we talked about has a different narrative. And that's in the book of Acts, isn't it? Yep. The transition into Acts. Yep. So in the book of Acts, he goes and he buys the field himself, Judas does, mm-hmm. 
and he's working in the field when he falls headlong and his guts spill. Because that's what happens when you trip. <laughs> that's when you, you trip on your own plow. Um, we talked last week, or not last week, it's been a few weeks now, but we talked about how arguments took place where people said, well, maybe he hung himself and then he fell and his guts fell out. And it wasn't really the priest that bought the field. It was um, Judas gave them the means to buy the field. So there's like apologetics that run with this. Yeah. And, and that's a problem, I think, sometimes that we don't allow those um, what we cons- consider inconsistencies just to be. Yeah. But I like to go back to the idea of who bought the field. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's really the question, is who bought the field with the corrupt money? Because I think that's the question posed to us. Yeah. Is if you benefit from betraying Christ what do you do and that is a so what do you mean by betray Christ because because now because we like you said we've always tend to from the pulpit related people to the denial let me put a name to it if we choose the flag over Christ because <laughs> that's what Judas did that's what Judas did yeah he, he chose his national um, promises over this Messiah that was teaching him to love his enemies. Yeah. So you're you're asking the, the a, a very hard question. Uh, that's what. That's what. That's G- I mean, that's, that's the question there. that's posed. Yeah. yeah. So the, what do you do with the money when you've betrayed the Son of God? And when you say betrayed the Son of God, you are asking the question of when we endorse any way besides the way of God the way of the kingdom of God and we profit from that what do we do with that profit yeah because sometimes people will say well I give it back to the church I'm investing that into the kingdom of God I'm, I'm and that's a scary place to look well that's why it calls it blood money <laughs> yeah he calls it blood money so yeah. we can't put this and back in the, the coffers Pharisees, the Pharisees that just conspired mm-hmm. to kill an innocent man they they even say we can't put this into the treasury because it's corrupt money but yeah <laughs> we gave it to him though so that I mean that's a hard pill to swallow it is but this, that's that's why I say Judas really needs to be more relatable to us we need to see that he was more or less a good person who loved his country slightly more than he loved his Messiah. And when you word it like that, and we look at the Western culture that we're in, looking at a very narrow view of Christianity in the United States, and we see people choosing country over the way of God, over the kingdom, that doesn't preach well. Because what it does is exactly what Jesus did to Judas, push him over the edge. Yeah. And you have to choose who then you serve. And it's very easy for us to try and be like the Pharisees and Sadducees on work inside of the system. But Jesus calls us to be work. Do you think? Do you believe that Jesus calls us to work outside of the system, and not even participate? Uh, I don't want to say not even participate. If Jesus wanted to be an Essene, he could have been an Essene. He could have gone into the wilderness. Yeah. No, Jesus chose to be right there in the middle of everything, to be a thorn in everybody's side, yeah. um, exposing the inhumanity of it all. So, in essence, Jesus was a thorn in the side of both the religious and the political. Yeah, and the rebels. He, 
I mean, at the, at the end of the Gospels, Jesus has really ticked everybody off. Yeah, every last sect of society. So, you're, so when you pose the question, when we talk about, and we've dived into this a little bit, we've always kind of skirted around the idea of nationalism versus the way of the kingdom of God. When nationalism and the kingdom of God rise up against each other, our the church in the Western world tends to be very quick to explain away the teachings of Jesus and say simple things like, well, Jesus says to love your enemy, but if you look at reality, it's really hard to love your enemy, and he doesn't expect you to love the people who bomb Americans. Yeah. Because we need to defend that. And where I think we both might argue the standpoint, I think I might speak to you for you because I'm going to speak for other people. But that you, would you argue that, and I would argue the fact that people who unfortunately make the decision to bomb other people, that we are called to love them no matter what? Um, on a national scale, it's hard. I almost think we need to imagine that they are a different people. Um, they're behaving in subhuman ways. They're behaving as Judas. Right. They are choosing right. the way of... So if Jesus is the true human, yeah. and he says true humans love their enemies, then anything other than that is subhuman. Yeah. So there is there is the subhuman, and we have to look at that with a certain amount of pity because we've all been there. Yes. We've all operated in subhuman ways. Yeah. But then how do you... Because there, there, there is that, I don't want to call it a fine line, and maybe it's because we're almost done with the whole growler. It's a nuance. It's a nuance. It's a nuance. Line. It's not like a black or white absolute, this is, you must love everybody in this specific way. Mm-hmm. But we are called to love enemies. And I would say that we have to look at it from the standpoint, it's not we are to love the enemies of a nation, we are to love the enemies of the kingdom of God. And the enemies of a nation. And I would argue that Christians are to see every person, enemy or ally, as an image of God. And to destroy the image of God is blasphemy. And to, des- and to destroy the image of God is to do as, Ju- as Judas did. To, to pick, betray it. To yeah. betray it. He literally betrayed the image of God yeah, Jesus himself that, or as uh, what what letter is it in which Paul says that he's the exact representation of, yeah so yeah yeah if there was ever a person who saw God and said I'd rather have our kingdoms than God's kingdom and that's hard Jesus. to and that's hard to wrestle with because once you start throwing in the idea of nationalism and war and all that a lot of innocent people fall into the to the sidelines a lot of people would rather us not mention that but that's the whole context of the gospels yeah is you have a people that's oppressed they don't want to be oppressed anymore they believe a messiah is coming but that messiah is going to relieve them of their oppression and that messiah ends up telling them to love their oppressors and we can all we we follow that story all the way up to love your oppressors we like to say, okay, there's people oppressed, let's deal with that oppression. And when Jesus says to love the oppressors, we're like, well, wait wait a minute here. 
-hmm. We need to liberate those who are oppressed. And the way we liberate people who are oppressed in Jesus' context and in our context is through violence. Yeah, and you come from a pretty good tradition here at the Congregational Church, United Church of Christ. (laughs) I would like to voice the opinion of those who just say, well, the whole point of the Gospels is so that we can go to heaven. Yeah. I mean, because that's ultimately what a lot of people talk about. Yeah. They don't get into the nitty-gritty of how Jesus was culturally. Yeah. They'd rather just talk about the fact that he came, he was on a mission, he was on a mission to die, he was a kamikaze pilot, (laughs) Um, he showed up, he died, and because he died without sinning, then he beat sin and death, and God vindicated him. Yeah. And that's our churchy talk, and then we're kind of done with it. It's like, well, he did that so that you can now have eternal life. Yeah. But we leave out the fact that he was a person living for 33 years in a a portion of Palestine that was occupied by a foreign oppressor, and he was claiming to be the one that was going to deliver them. Yeah. And he claims it in a way that is annoying to both sides. And he plays it out by dying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, th- and that's where like the scriptures talk about the idea of no greater love has a man than he lays his life down. I mean, this idea that that our love for even our enemies, mm-hmm. like Jesus, does, Jesus makes a conscious decision not to get violent. Well, and then he throws out in John eighteen thirty three through forty. This is at his trial. So Judas's deed has been done. Um, we've actually talked a lot about Jesus as opposed to Judas, but they go hand in hand because because of the nature of our conversation. But um, John eighteen thirty three through forty. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, "Are you the King of the Jews?" And Jesus answered, "Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me?" Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Do, uh, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If, it, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of, from this world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. He never claims that. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? I think that's the point that most of us sit at. I think that's the that's the line that Judas was at, is what what is truth? What is good? Yeah. And we know which way what, Judas what's ended the ideal? up. Because I know, I think in Judas's mind, it's what is truth. I've read Zechariah. Zechariah says the Messiah is supposed to come up and vanquish all the Gentiles. Yeah. I've read Isaiah where it talks about the day of the Lord. I've read Amos. In Judas's mind, he's read enough scripture to prove Jesus wrong. Yeah. Would you almost argue that that in our Western world, sometimes we say, well, we've read Revelation. This is the way it's going to end up. 
Are you plugging our Revelation series? Yeah, I'm plugging <laughs> the Revelation series slightly no, there. That's but yeah. exactly right. Yeah. We begin to perceive of a certain way for so long that anything else becomes heresy. Not part of the, yeah, heresy or not part of the narrative. Yeah. We just don't recognize it. So at the end of the Gospels, we're given a choice to choose the um, the thief or insurrectionist Barabbas yep. or Jesus. And we already kind of know where Judas falls because of his decision beforehand. He falls on the Barabbas. Mm-hmm. I mean, he regrets that decision, but he falls for Barabbas. He only regrets it in Matthew. Yeah. But yes, you're right. <laughs> but, but then we see the general population pick Barabbas over Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I guess having, having done enough messages through like Easter and all that and asking the question, do you pick Barabbas over Jesus? We never ask directly the idea of do we pick the national view over the kingdom of God? Because that's exactly what they pick. They pick somebody who is going to rise up against Rome in a violent way Mm -hmm. and carry on this idea of the extreme nationalism that the zealots and the the Sakari are embodying over Jesus. And they pick him. I mean, there's the whole mob mentality that goes on and all that, but Jesus is thrown aside. And said the way that we, the way that yeah. you're preached, and we've loved this idea. You feed people and all this, but we can't endorse the whole thing. Yeah, ultimately it came down to: Do you pick the one that kills his enemies, or do you pick the one that loves his enemies? Yeah. Because Barabbas was on trial for murder, mm-hmm. for killing, and it's kind of sick and twisted of the Roman Empire to do this. But every Passover, yeah. Every Passover, they would release to them one of their insurrectionist leaders. Yeah. So here's Jesus, who is the Messiah, and here's Barabbas, who claimed to be a Messiah. Now, Tony Campolo wrote a book about this, which is really good, called What Jesus? Which Jesus? And it's really short. So I highly recommend that. But he says, well, why is Barabbas? That just means son of the father. Well, what's his first name? And so Tony Campolo, along with a bunch of other scholars, argue that they're both named Jesus. Jesus. So you have Jesus Barabbas, or you have Jesus Bar-Joseph. Yeah. Son of Joseph, son of Son of the Father. Barabbas, yeah. son of the Father. So do you take the son of the Father, or do you take... The son of Joseph. The son of Joseph, the human one. And I think in probably generally we take the son of the Father, Barabbas, over the son of Joseph. Yeah, and that's a. It should be a, a kind of like an eye opener that we side. I think the church tends to the Western church tends to side with Judas more than we want to let on. Right, and that's the whole point of this whole two part series. series yeah. that Judas to me is one of the more relatable characters of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. He objects to a lot of the things that we would object to. He he turns away at the same moment that most of us would turn away. When Jesus goes just that one step too far for us. Yeah. It's convicting. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) I think it should be. Yeah. I think the other thing that's really interesting about Judas is that at the end of the day, I think he was a well-intentioned, good person. Yeah. 
especially when we read Matthew. And that's the problem is our churches, our communities are full of well-intentioned good people that at the end of the day, when it comes to enemies or even people that are different than them, they can't get over that hurdle. Yeah. Ultimately, people are why we are stuck where we're at. Mm -hmm. um, people disliking people, people being prejudiced against people, people being racist against people, people not loving their enemies. That's why we are in the state of affairs that we are in. And the scriptures talk about the idea of you can't love the father if you hate your brother. Yeah. And I spoke about that on Sunday, this idea that how can we say we love God when we still harbor hatred towards other people? Mm -hmm. And it, it, I mean, and it's not just the hatred of like, oh, I don't want to go to my family for Thanksgiving because they annoy the dickens out of me. It's that, that idea is of that hatred. Is or are you just speaking broadly? <laughs> speaking broadly, because okay. this has been recorded. <laughs> but this idea of the fact of, like, when we have hatred towards anybody, how can we claim love of Christ? Mm -hmm. I'm reading right now another good C.S. Lewis book called uh, The Great Divorce. Mm -hmm. Do you read that? I've read it back in the day. <laughs> back when I had to read it. So he paints heaven as a place that essentially everybody goes to an afterlife. Mm -hmm. And um, this might offend some listeners, but I don't care. <laughs> so, and he begins by saying, this is fiction. But you know with C.S. Lewis, his fiction is never really fiction. fiction yeah. It's where his best theology <laughs> comes out. So he argues that everybody goes to this place. But this village where they start, they all hate each other so much. They don't want to be next to... Um, for example, Russians, if they had been invaded by Russians. Yeah. Or they don't want to be next to a country that attacked them. And so they will, like, leave people and spread out over space. And so basically hell is people that don't want anything to do with people. Yeah. And they go, they get to this bus stop, they take a bus to heaven. And when they get there they're forced to like communicate with the people that they've been trying to stay away from. And they're forced to feel grass for the first time. And they're forced to see a sky and it's all painful to them. And so most people go back. Yeah. Most people don't want heaven. And I've made the argument before, um, not the most popular thing I've said, but I've made that argument from church pulpit before that, if you harbor racism in your heart, then you don't desire to go to heaven. And God will honor your request. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Because how could you, if you hate people based on the color of their skin, how could you ever expect to go to a place that's going to have every nation under heaven in one place as equals? Yeah. I mean, heaven can become hell to some people. Let that sink in for a moment. Heaven can be hell for some people because there are people. So, you, so the, your statement would be because there are people that we believe shouldn't be there, then it becomes hell because we don't want to get along. Yeah. Because we don't believe they are worthy of being there. Yep. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'll let C.S. Lewis teach that one. <laughs> the Great Divorce. Pick it up That'd at your local bookstore. Um, so, yeah. Uh, we're now we're 30 minutes in. We went way over, but... <laughs> but it was good. It was good. What are you drinking tonight? We're both drinking 
um, a growler that I picked up from our buddy Troy at the Horse's Mouth in Belmont. Doesn't have a label on it. No <laughs> uh, so I picked up the growler with beer and Bible in mind, knowing that I couldn't drink it myself. Uh, it's called Barbaric Yelp from Black Rocks Brewery. Black Rocks Brewery. Um, He's getting an Uber home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Uber and Belding. Yeah, they come out. We found that out. Okay. Yeah. Remember? That's true. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, side story. <laughs> so. Um, it was good. What do you think of it? I like it. I think it's um, it's tasty. It's got that. What is it? What kind of barrels are they use? It's a scotch. It's a scotch. Uh, bourbon barrel aged. I liked it. There's not much of it left. Scotch ale. But yeah, thank you for joining us again. Yep. We will try and record more often. I think we've passed some of the stuff. You took on a new. Job. Took on a new job and stuff happens of life and families and stuff like that. So thank you for joining us for episode 13. We will get episode 14 out to you as soon as possible. If you guys want to have us tackle something, shoot us a message on Facebook. I had a special request that we tackle sin and Satan. Sin and Satan. That sounds like we fun. Could, we could do a bad word series. <laughs> but I'm Paul and this is Dan. And that was awkward. But we'll catch you guys in the next one. See you guys. See ya.